invite you to take your Bibles. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 13 this morning. I did not get the page number of the Pew Bible there, but it's, it is Acts 13. Uh, going to be looking at verses 1 through 3 there. I want to welcome you back to our series entitled The Spirit at Work to the Ends of the Earth. It is basically a series of many episodes penned, created, ultimately by the Spirit of God, but penned and chronicled by Dr. Luke. Tells the overall story in a flowing mini-series of three seasons. The outline for the series was given by Jesus before he left this world when he spoke to his his disciples this statement in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In that verse, Jesus told us how the seasons would be organized. Season one would be Acts chapter one through seven. And in Acts chapter one through seven, the Holy Spirit would be at work in Jerusalem among both the Hebrew and Hellenistic Jews. It is a series that began on the day of Pentecost. It will culminate in the martyrdom of the first Christian martyr named Stephen, and it will end with the, a great persecution that is breaking forth in Jerusalem. That first series, Acts chapter 1 through 7, lasted somewhere between six and seven years. Season 2 began in Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8 through 12. And this particular series, as we've mentioned, focused on three guys, Philip, Peter, and Paul, or Saul, as he's called at this time. Their story is, is, is like a typical miniseries. You know, you, you, you follow one for a little bit, and then all of a sudden, the, the next episode, or even part of that episode, is the, the, uh, the other guy's story. And, and you have these parallel tracks going on of Philip and Peter and Paul. And they're going, their ministry primarily now is expanding into Judea and Samaria. Peter is the first to see a convert that is a Gentile. It's an astonishing moment. It's actually the house of a a Roman centurion named Cornelius. He goes there and he and members of his household believe on Jesus. And even though they have a pagan Gentile background, Peter is astonished to see that they received the Holy Spirit in the same way that the Jews did at Pentecost. And he realizes that people can now embrace Jesus as their Messiah, as their Savior and Lord, without having to become a Jew. It is a dramatically shocking and transforming moment in the understanding of the gospel and what Jesus came to do for the early church. Peter's ministry continued, and so did Paul's. And Paul's ministry, along with other leaders, extended up into the northern areas. As a matter of fact, what happens in Acts chapter 8 through 12 is you begin to see two centers for the early church being developed, certainly at Jerusalem where it all began. But a second one is 300 miles north in a city called Antioch. Uh, It may not sound that far away. I mean, 300 miles is Pittsburgh, right? I mean, how long does it take you to get to Pittsburgh? Five hours? But these guys walked. And so between Jerusalem and Antioch, a distance of 300 miles by foot, 
There were many other scores of other smaller churches in smaller towns and villages, but these two churches became the center of the early Christian faith and the early Christian movement. We find Acts chapter 8 through 12 ending after a period of now an additional nine or ten years with the church beginning to, we see the church at Jerusalem ending in Acts chapter 12 with another period of persecution, this time not by the religious leaders, this by the civil authorities. Herod himself takes James, the brother of John, one of the three main apostles of Jesus, and beheads him. He has Peter on the docket for the next morning to be beheaded as well, and God's angel miraculously rescued him as we saw the last time we looked in Acts chapter 12. Meanwhile, in Antioch, the church has been flourishing. The church has sent a guy named Barnabas to go up there, and he has gone and grabbed Paul, and they have begun to disciple the church, and they are now the prominent leaders and teachers in the church. And we see the emphasis is beginning to move from the center, epicenter of Jerusalem, 300 miles north, as this church in Antioch, now 16 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, 16 years after the day of Pentecost, Antioch has now become the epicenter for the enterprise that is going to fulfill, be, be season three, the spirit at work literally to the ends of the earth. Up until now, there's been no designed strategy for how to do world evangelism. As a matter of fact, even the church at Jerusalem has just been doing reactionary work. If you remember, and again, I'm giving you some background here. Don't panic. I know you're thinking, wow, there's a long introduction of when, uh, well, I'm trying to bring you up to speed. So the church in Jerusalem has basically been doing reactionary work. When they hear of something, they respond to it. Like, for instance, in Acts chapter 8, they hear about some of the Samaritans, the, the northern area above Judea and Jerusalem. There are people believing. They, they send Peter and John to go and check it out. They find out, wow, the Samaritans are turning to faith in Christ. In Acts chapter 10, Peter has this visit on the, on the coastal town of Caesarea where he meets and, and, and sees this Roman centurion believe. And the church then eh, eh, sends individuals to talk to Peter and, and try to get a feel. What's going on? What's God doing? In Acts chapter 11, when they heard that people were believing all the way up in Antioch, they send Barnabas. Say, well, find out what's going on. Check this out. Barnabas gets there, is overwhelmed with the beauty of what God is doing, grabs Saul, and they, uh, they now continue their ministry here. But in each of those cases, the role of the church has basically been reactionary. They're responding. They don't have a strategy. They don't say, you know, let's go, let's, let's start our missionary enterprise. No, the reason the church spread beyond Jerusalem is because persecution drove everybody out. But there's a big change in Acts 13. In Acts 13, the Spirit of God now is going to begin a movement, a strategic movement, which involves planning and, and directives. And we'll see that as Paul carries out a very clear strategic ministry in his missionary endeavors in the chapters to come. But what we find now 
is that the church is going to expand. It has been operating from the safety of a monotheistic belief system where there's belief all along that eastern side of the Mediterranean, basically within the Jews and the Samaritans, and with one God as creator and Lord of all, sending them now into the heart of the Roman Empire. A culture that's filled with multiple small gods, controllable deities, because the true deity of Rome is actually power, political power, national power, military power. And the deity of Greece, which permeates the Roman Empire as well, is man's intelligence and philosophical reasoning. But it's a whole different view of God than they have had. And so now the church is expanding into a whole new world. And they're taking forth the gospel to do it. We come to a local church that God entrusts with the launching of this third stage of gospel expansion. The church in Antioch stands as a model of embracing the mission of Jesus into the world. It is not a model because they have the right programs in Antioch. It's not a model because they have the right style of music or the right ministry methods. Antioch is a model of what the church should be because of its people, because of the priorities in their lives, because they are a people that incarnate the vision that Jesus proclaimed and that the Holy Spirit empowers. They are a people passionately committed to the gospel. I'd like to read verses 1 through 3 now. And we find, and this is going to form the outline of our study, there are three things that are true about this church that became the epicenter of sending and fulfilling the mission of Christ into the world. Number one, there are people that have received the gospel. We'll see this in verse, well, actually, let me read the passage. Acts chapter 13. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Let's pray. Lord, I go back to that song we just sang. The love of God that pursues the relentless, reckless love of God that is unrestrained. Lord, it is that love that compels us to take time this morning to come to this building, to watch online this service, because we have experienced a God who loves passionately, relentlessly, And Lord, it is you to whom we come. God, thank you for John's story this morning. I too, with Josiah, thank you for the picture of faithfulness that 
your preeminent calling on our lives, that we be faithful. Lord, I pray that would continue to be the hallmark of John's life. Guide him, direct him, use him. Thank you for the courage and the strength that he had to come here today and how much easier it would have been to just send a video. Lord, thank you that you are faithful to us. And thank you for his messaging to that end this morning. Now, Lord, in these few moments we have left, God, I love this church in Antioch. I want to live like they lived. I want to love like they loved. And I ask you, Lord, that you would speak into our our hearts in these few moments together. Lord, show us the Christ that they loved so much. That we too might be people by God's grace on mission. In Jesus' name, amen. There are three things we find about these believers' devotion to the gospel. Number one, they receive the gospel, verse one. Number two, they are realizing the gospel in their lives. And then in verse three, they are releasing the gospel to others. They receive the gospel. I want to just take a minute to read some verses from Acts chapter 11 to just highlight that and how this church began. We read this in verse 19 to 26 of Acts chapter 11. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, this is all the way back in chapter 7, as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them to all remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. He gives us the history of this church and, and how this gathering we're reading about in Acts 13 verse 1 came together. It says, they turned to the Lord. That's the phrase that's used to describe them. It's a phrase that's continually used in the book of Acts. It's, it, it talks in some passages, they turned from their sins to the Lord. In other passages, it says, it says they turned from their useless beliefs and practices to the Lord. But the idea is, for these people in Antioch, the entire trajectory of their lives had been transformed by the gospel. They turned to the Lord. They turned away from other sins, other things, and they were transformed by the gospel. But that isn't all that happened to them regarding the gospel. It's a second thing. Verse, and I'm going to come back to, to, to this um, 
talking about these guys in verse 1. But if you notice in verse 2, something else happened. In Acts chapter 13, it says this, verse 1, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They were living out the gospel. They had imbibed it. They were not only recipients of the gospel like they had embraced the gospel message. They were realizing its impact in their lives. To them, it was not just a ticket to heaven. It was an utterly transforming reality that happened in their view of life, in their values, their goals, their aspirations. I'm landing on this for a moment here. Because this to me is the greatest cry that I think we need to have as we look at the church of the Western world. There are countless people that would believe I have received the gospel, but they are not realizing the reality and the transforming power of the gospel. This is the crisis in the Western church today, America, certainly Europe. Both in Europe and the United States in generations past, the gospel foundationally challenged people's lives. It transformed them. But now, in many ways, being familiar with the gospel, being familiar with the name of Christ and the realities of Christ has been inoculation. It's just, we, we've had some, and, 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 but it's inoculated us against the real disease. Yeah I, I, yeah, I get all that. I know all that. I've tried all that. I've, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with it. Now one's political allegiance is more central to millions of professing evangelicals than living as Jesus did. The issues they are passionate about are decidedly what is best for me financially, personally, rather than realizing that the glory of the church has always been its concern for the marginalized and the broken and the needy. Most of the church, the hospitals that have been started in the Western world were started by Christians. There has always been the orientation toward the needy. The gospel puts our hope in Christ's power and our passion for his purposes. These people realized the transforming reality of the gospel in their lives. They did it in two ways. Number one, they embraced their unique sameness. That sounds like a contradictory, and I'm saying it that way deliberately. In verse one, we read about these guys, and we find five leaders that are, that are mentioned, and they're, they're interesting characters. I want to highlight them quickly. These five individuals that are said to be prophets and teachers, we don't, it doesn't say which is which. But number one is a guy named Barnabas, and he's the one that had been uh, uh, sent here, commissioned here by the church in Jerusalem. Barnabas was a Levite from Cyprus, the island in the Mediterranean Sea. He has a Jewish background. He was a Levite of the priestly class of Judaism. He was from the island of Cyprus, a wealthy man, gave land to the church to sell to provide for others. The second guy that's mentioned is Simeon, who it says, who was also called Niger. The word Niger means black. Most 
commentators uh, believe that it, it was a black man, probably from somewhere in Africa, and for some reason that was part of his nickname. It was a guy named Lucius of Cyrene, probably a founding member of the church in Antioch, because we are told in Acts chapter 11 that it was from Cyrene that a bunch of Jews that had been converted towards Christ came to Antioch and started the church. Cyrene actually was on North Africa. It's in contemporary Libya. It's on the western side of uh, Northern Africa. There was a population of 100,000 Jews at this time that lived in, in Cyrene. Apparently, he had been led to Christ, maybe at Pentecost, maybe since then, and he has now come, and he is among that group that probably were the starters of the church. He's a founding member of this church, likely. A guy named Manian, who is just a fascinating character. You see how he's described there. A close friend of Herod the Tetrarch. I mean, Herod the Tetrarch is the guy that took the head off John the Baptist. Herod the Tetrarch, or also called Herod Antipas, was the guy that interviewed Jesus and sent him back to Pilate. Manian's his good buddy. The word actually means they were nursed together. We don't know if that actually means they were babies and their families were close, but, but he had a royal background and no, he's, he's of nobility. He's a prominent person in the culture. And he's also a member of the Antiochian church. The first, fifth guy is Saul, a Jewish scholar who had become the hitman for the religious establishment and here they are in Antioch, a city who literally had this slogan. This actually was, I don't know if we'd call it a jingle, I'll call it a jingle today, but it was actually their slogan. Their slogan in Antioch in the first century was all the world in one city. It was a, church, it was a city that was filled with cultural backgrounds of all different types. We see that even in the leadership of the Antiochian church. But we also see, as we look at this leadership in the Antioch church, some remarkable sameness. They had a same awareness. Now hang with me here. The Apostle Paul writes a letter in Romans 15, and he's talking about the gospel going forth. And he says, this is what the gospel does. And he describes it in, in, in chapter 15, verse 8 and 9. I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. He says, I, I, Christ became a servant to fulfill for you Jews what he promised to the patriarch, but also the other in order that is in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Basically, he says, Christ did this for both of you, all of you. Jews, Gentiles, what did he do? He brought mercy. And he says, you had that promised in your patriarchs, your fathers, but they've experienced it now as well. And Paul says, this is why there are guys like me out there. We're trying to say that everyone, Jew, Greek, Roman, Egyptian, atheist, agnostic, communist, American, Russian, Chinese, Maltese, Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, black panther, white supremacists stand in need of the same measure of mercy and the same abundance of compassion from Almighty God. This vision is what led this church to be the launch pad of modern missions. 
They had a common awareness of themselves. Years ago, there had been a guy named Jonah who was a prophet of Israel, who was a terrible missionary. He was a great teacher, a prophet, but he didn't have a heart for missions. I believe he didn't have a heart for missions. And we, we read, it wasn't because he was scared of the Assyrians and Ninevites. As a matter of fact, in the last chapter of the book of Jonah, we find out that he wasn't a, didn't want to be a missionary to them because he despised them. He was bitter towards them. I believe the reason he didn't have pity on them was that he did not sufficiently realize that he was nothing but a sinner saved by grace. So he ran away from God. And of course, you know the story. He gets in a boat in Joppa, wants to go the other direction. He's heading towards Spain, whereas he's supposed to go to the east. He went to the west and God has a way of superseding our plans. And he has him end up in the water of the Mediterranean Sea. A big fish gets him when he's in the, bottom of, in the belly of the fish. In chapter 2, he prays. And he culminates his prayer of crying out to God with this phrase, salvation is of the Lord. It actually is a central verse of the Old Testament. There's so much theology in it. It's emphasizing the fact that from start to finish, God is the pursuing God. He, he, he is the God of that reckless, relentless, pursuing love. Jonah forgot that. Or Jonah had never really imbibed that deep enough of what it meant that God had come after him. And God had come after him not because he, he, was, he was somehow worthy to be his prophet, but because he too was a broken sinner in need of mercy. We still have um, the vending machines today. But back a few years ago, vending machines were more prominent than they are now. And I can remember doing vending machines all the time, and you just learned the art of doing these babies. So many times you'd put your coins in and nothing. And you'd press and you just, oh man. And, you, and you, you learned you had to rattle that thing a little bit out. Now, if you own a vending machine company, I'm really sorry. Um, I, I, I'm sure you're, we won't, you're thinking, no, it breaks the machine. But, but you, you rattled it and you learned pretty soon that if you rattled it, that was a lot of times how you got the coin to drop in, you know. It gets stuck somewhere and, there, and, you, and you rattle it and all of a sudden then you could push it and you could get your soda or your candy or your gum or whatever it was. That's somewhat of a picture of pastoral ministry. Pastoral ministry is constantly saying, we believe the gospel, but it's got to go deeper. It's got to go in farther. We got to rattle it a little bit. Matter of fact, I'm in good standing here. Martin Luther made the statement that the purpose of ministry was not only to make the gospel clear, but to beat it into your people's heads and your own. Jonah needed the gospel to get into his head. He needed to get into his life. He needed to be rattled. And so he ends up in the belly of a, a great fish. And when he's there, he says, oh my goodness. God's a God of salvation for me. That God's a God of mercy 
for me. There was an awareness that he didn't have, even though he's a prophet. These guys had a sense. We're gathered together. But we're gathered together not because of our cultural backgrounds, which are incredibly diverse. I mean, he only tells us five of the people at church. Be fascinating to hear the whole membership list. But what joined them together? They had the same awareness. They were broken people that needed forgiveness from God. They were people that needed a Christ who would be central in their lives. A God that did pursue them and desire them. The second thing they had is they had a same allegiance. They were part of this church at Antioch. The called out group but they're so identified publicly with Jesus Christ, they were told in Acts chapter 11, I believe it's verse 26, that for the first time, believers were called Christians at Antioch. Why? Well, the I-A-N-S means you belong to. I mean, think about it. Philippians, people from Philippi. Thessalonians. They're from, Phil- they're from Thessalonica. Corinthians. But they didn't call them. There's, the, the, there's those people that believe in Jesus. And they're Antiochians. Antiochians. No. They called them Christians. Christians. Why? Because they said, these people belong to Christ. He's central in their lives. Pleasing him is most important to him. Their passions for Christ. Their goal is the advancement of Christ and his glory. This was the allegiance to a person that was astonishing in its impact. Jesus Christ was their Lord, their master, their king of their lives. And they were made up of Jews and Gentiles. They were made up of of, of black men from Africa. They were made up of of Levites of the priestly class. They were made up of friends of, of Herod the Tetrarch. They were made up of all kinds of people. But they were people that had the same awareness that they were recipients of grace. And it had rattled down into the very soul of their lives. And so they looked at other people differently. And they had an allegiance that united them. They'd fallen in love with this Christ who had pursued them. Verse 2, and we'll move faster here. They lived as worshipers. Not only did they embrace their unique sameness, they also lived as worshipers. Verse 2 says this. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They lived as worshipers while they were worshiping, it says, the Lord, the Spirit of God spoke to them. Who's the them? Who's the they that were worshiping? If you'd asked me that before I started studying for this sermon, I would have said it was the five guys. I don't believe it was. I don't believe it grammatically, and I don't believe it theologically. I believe it is saying these were the five men that were 
prophets and teachers in the church, but it was the whole church that was praying. It was the whole church that was worshiping. And God the Holy Spirit came among them. It's interesting that in Acts chapter uh, uh, 14, at the end of the passage, it says that they returned and they reported to the church who had sent them forth. The idea is they're going to the people that have released them to whom the Spirit has spoken. The word worship in the New Testament actually means to give weight to. That's, it means it, 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 you give weight to it. You, you give significance to it. You, you honor it. It's something weighty to you. What he's saying is this. To these people in Antioch, there was one thing that was most weighty to them. It was Christ. They worshipped him. They weren't praying and they weren't worshiping and fasting because they knew this might be the day that the missionary enterprise starts right here. They had no idea. They were just seeking God, hungering for God, thirsting for God as a people. That means that they gave weight to him more than anything else. It means that Barnabas, a wealthy man, did not give weight to his money. It wasn't the thing that drove him. Matter of fact, he demonstrates it by giving fields away, selling the money and giving the proceeds to the needy in the church. He gave weight to Christ. It means that Lucius, the church founder, did not give weight to the fact that this is my church. No, it's Christ's church. It means that Manion did not give way to his position in the culture as the friend. I mean, this is a prominent dude, big time guy. He's the, he's the, he's the childhood friend of, of Herod the Antipas, who I've told you before, was also a friend of the emperor. That whole Herod family was. He didn't give way to his position. It wasn't what drove him. He wasn't making his mark. He wasn't looking for his esteem there. He wasn't, their identity was not found. Barnabas and his money was not found in his position in the culture. For Simeon, he did not give weight to his minority status as a, as a black man in this culture. Saul did not give weight to his intellect and his education. They were all broken sinners needing daily grace. And they gave way to Christ. They worshiped Christ. This is the kind of people that God entrusts to be the starters of the modern missionary movement. This is the kind of people that are on mission. A same awareness, a same allegiance, a same adoration. You see, you won't be passionate about the mission of Christ if you are not passionate about the worship of Christ. The, reasons, the reason for missions is worship. To make worshipers. It's why John Piper says missions is not God's ultimate goal. Worship is. 
Missions is just temporary. Missions is with the purpose of bringing people into being worshipers, which we will do forever. So the third thing, they released the gospel. Verse 3, they released it by their own witness. If you're a worshiper, if Jesus is your heart's delight, you long for others to know him that way. The passion of missions is to see others become worshipers. My most consistent prayer for people that I am most passionate come to Christ. I almost never pray, Lord, deliver them from hell, though I believe that is the fruit of, of rejecting Christ in this world. God, enable him to go to heaven. <laughs> My most consistent prayer for the people that I love most and want to see come to Christ is, Lord, bring them so they know you, so they taste you, the safest person they will ever experience in their lives, the God that is for them. Bring them to you. But you don't pray that way if he's not for you, right? I mean, if you're not worshiping, when we say, all right, I want everybody to, this church is going to become a mission-minded church. So we're going to find five people. and We're going to say, we're going to fully support you. We're going to get you to the mission field. We're going to be a missionary people. And our hearts are not going to change a, a, a stitch what will change our heart and make us passionate about missions locally in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our towns, and in our world is that we are so in love with who Jesus Christ is. We want others to know him like that. We want others to experience him. We want him to know how good he is. The loveliness of Christ. Worshippers. Become people on mission. It's why we read in the book of Acts that they constantly says they did this for the sake of the name, for the sake of the name, for the sake. It means for the sake of the reputation of Christ. Often it says they were willing to suffer in the book of Acts. What does that mean? They were willing to go out there and be persecuted and rejected because Christ was so lovely that they, that they wanted people to know him. They wanted people to experience the gospel that he came to provide. But it came out of being worshipers. They released it by their own witness. They released it through the ones they sent. In verse 3, it says they sent, but actually it is the word released. They didn't technically send these guys. In verse 4, it's the spirit that sends Paul and Barnabas. They released them. Now, they could not have, you know, they could, I mean, they couldn't have really stopped Paul and Barnabas from leaving, but they could have said, no, 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 no. These are our two big cogs. I mean, they're the big dogs here. We can't afford, they've only been here a little over a year. We, we, we need them. I say, no. It's the Lord's purposes that we want to align ourselves with 
And so they joyfully released these men to the work that God had called them to do. We're going to see that work in the next number of weeks as we go through the remainder of the book of Acts and see these journeys of Paul and all the strategy that's involved and all the ways that God works as they take the gospel into a world that is just like ours. Pluralistic, uh, so many, uh, humanistic, all the things that are there. But where it all started, going into the Roman Empire is from a group of people that shared an awareness that they were recipients of grace and nothing more, that shared an allegiance, that they were passionately desiring that every part of their lives would be lived under the Lordship of Christ, that shared an adoration, that said, you know what's waiting to me? It's not being successful in my job. It's not killing it with sales. It's not having body beautiful. It's not having a relationship that I've got to have. No. What kills it for me, what is weighty to me, is knowing Jesus Christ. It's glorifying Jesus Christ. And everything else and anything else that's standing in the way that, that honestly is more weighty God, take it away. God, change it. This was the people to whom God entrusted this great mission and work. Let's pray together. Lord, we love the gospel. We love not only that it's delivered us from separation and judgment, but that it's brought us into a relationship with a Christ who we are coming more and more and more to love. Lord, make us people that would look at our lives and would say, if they'd never even heard the word, those are people that must belong to Christ. It's just what drives them. It's who they belong to. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Now go in peace to love and serve and enjoy the Lord.